Growing up in Van Nuys, California, Marty Walsh hit his stride in music just as his dad and brothers did. They were all naturals. With that said, it's no surprise that Jay Graydon was the bass player in his brother Dan's band. And as it pans out, Jay soon encouraged Marty to study music in college, and he took the advice. This led to a series of events that would have Walsh playing sessions with Graydon, Seals and Crofts, and Yvonne Elliman. In the early 80s, he found himself on the hits 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton, She Works Hard for the Money by Donna Summer, and Neil Diamond's Heartlight. In 85, he played guitar on Supertramp's Brother Where You Bound, and then toured with the band until 1988. He's a veteran musician who still continues to gig, and is a faculty member at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, an impressive way to give back to new, emerging talent. And he recently released his debut solo CD, The Total Plan. Inside Music Cast welcomes Marty Walsh. Hey, Marty, thanks for joining us today. Oh, glad to be here, buddy. Thank welcome, you. Welcome. Hey, you know, like so many of our guests, uh, you were surrounded by music growing up. And, and, you know, your dad and your brothers, John and Dan, you know, they were all musicians and you and you naturally took to music. And, and I'm just give us an idea of your musical progression just within your home when you were growing up. Well, you know, um, there were a couple of things that were that were really instrumental Um you know, for me, uh, growing up as a musician, uh, one was the fact that my brother Dan was a, was a uh, he was a very successful songwriter. Yeah. Was a great guitar player as a young kid, mm-hmm. and he was in a band with a, with Jay Graydon mm-hmm. when when I was twelve. <laughs> so and and Jay had a brother named Gary, and so I was playing drums at the time, uh-huh. and uh, and Jay hooked me up with his brother. And so we had our little band, and these and, and those guys had the band and stuff. And so, I mean, you know, uh, um, uh, my father was in the music business. My, you know, he was a singer, primarily singer, yeah. guitar player, mm-hmm. and just did gigs. I mean, he was like a did society gigs and that kind of stuff was mm-hmm. his thing. Um, you know, after after he spent some time on the road, my brother John was a great vocalist. Had a contract with Warner Records um, when he was 19 years old, and got drafted in the army. And then, uh, you know, the whole thing kind of fell apart for that. But he was a songwriter too. He was signed uh, with um, Irving Almo uh, Publishing, and was writing tunes, you know. And uh, and my brother Dan doing the same thing. But but I, I, the the most uh, uh, influential thing that happened was was just the fact that I that I met Jay. He was just instrumental in giving me great information yeah. in, in terms of how to have a career in music. You know, it was, he's funny, man. Jay's, Jay's a very humble guy. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, he's an unbelievable guitar player, an unbelievable producer, songwriter. He actually worked on my new album that I have out, but, uh, that's right. But, uh, he, um, he just had great things to tell me, you know, things to focus on, play great rhythm guitar, you know? Get your rhythm thing together. Mm-hmm. Be in tune. He says, bring your guitars over here, man, and I'll tune your bridges for you so that you're in tune. And uh, and and just had a lot of great things to tell me in terms of, of directing my uh, the, my focus, you know? And yeah. so, you know, because as a studio musician, you're called on to play guitar solos every now and again, but... But really, the most of it is 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 backing up, you know, with good rhythm parts and being able to, you know, come up with a good idea and you know have a good sound and all that stuff. And and he was just, he was just, he was the guy that really helped me out um, yeah. in terms of getting me going as a guitar player. You know? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it actually Jay that actually re- recommended that uh, you go to school or actually at uh, Valley College in Van Nuys? Yeah, yeah. Because he was at Valley College and he and and I mean, well, Jay is what is Jay? I think he's two years. I think he's two years older than me. Okay. So, so he had, he had gotten out of Valley College, and Jay, 
Jay's at, at the time was it was a was a um, a real uh, wearing a lot of hats. You know, he played guitar, he played bass, he had a four track studio in his house, and all everybody used to go over to his studio and hang out. And <laughs> and but but he wasn't really uh, focused on the guitar thing quite yet. You know, and I remember when he told me that he was really going to go for that. But um, but yeah, he he had gone to Valley College, and he told me he said, look. Go to this school. They got a great music department. Take all the theory classes and the harmony classes, and do all the stuff, and play in the band, in the, you know, in the jazz band, and play in the marching band, and you know, and go do that. And it really was a, uh, uh, a you know, quite a few people went through that institution. I mean, Greg Matheson was there, Dan Sawyer was there. I mean, there were a lot of great people that. That studied there and then just went on to have great music careers, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, one of the correspondents in Sweden, Mikhail Ingstrom, he was kind of uh, instrumental in getting us connected to you. Yeah. He's got a question that kind of revolves around Jay Graydon, and he says, "Is there a story behind how Jay got his nickname, the Rake, and that your brother uh, perhaps was involved in that nicknaming?" <laughs> right. right. Well, Jay, <laughs> this is great stuff, man. I'm digging this conversation. <laughs> um, uh, Jay. When he was in high school, he was book. He was not only was he in the band with my brother, but he was booking bands. Uh -huh. There was a there was a booking agent. His name was Don. I can't imagine how I can remember this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Don Podler, and Don Podler had a booking agency. And Don farmed out all these gigs to you know. This is back in the day when people needed live music. Right, you know, was, right. you know, didn't have DJs and stuff, and so um. So Podler used to farm out gigs to Jay. So Jay would book all of his friends' bands and take ten percent, right? <laughs> he was a bookie. <laughs> so, my, so my yeah. So my so there, you know, my brother's with in this band with him, and and you know, and he's catching on to this whole thing, and he calls him. He, he says, "Man, you're Jake the Rake." You're raking in the green. You know? <laughs> Just keep raking in the green. That's man. great. That's and great. So, of course, and then of course his his studio's called Garden Rake. <laughs> and and if, you, if, you to, if you go to his studio, he's in, in between the glass, between the control room and the, and the recording room, there's a garden rake in the, between the glass. <laughs> so, yeah, so my, my brother Dan gave him the name back when they were in high school, Jake the Rake. That's cool. great. <laughs> uh, well, t you know, tell us about how you got your first break with Seals and Crofts in 76. I mean, those when I think about those guys, I think about how meticulous they are, you know, and, and they expected perfection. You know, all the stories I've heard, they expect perfection from musicians they brought mm -hmm. in. So was this a difficult gig? You know, not not so much for me because Louis Shelton's guitar parts were so good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And uh, and uh, and you know, it was cop Louis parts, really. I mean, a yeah. lot of it was a lot of it was that. Mm -hmm. But uh, the way that whole thing started um, was uh, uh, my buddy Bill Como, hmm. keyboard player, had yeah. a had a band called Bonnaroo, mm -hmm. and uh, and they made a record, and uh, and and it made some noise. But then the, the guy that was the main cat in that band, uh, I, I don't know the guy's name, but he was the singer and kind of main songwriter. Michael Hosick was the drummer from the Doobie Brothers. He left the Doobie Brothers to start this band. Okay. So they, they did their thing, you know, and, and Warner said, well, the, the, this, this singer guy, he, he left the band after the first record. He split. I guess it was just, it must have been a one album deal. Um, and so Warner said, well, s cut us some demos and let's see what you got. So Bill, I had done some work with him, and uh, and so Billy called me and said, "Look, you want to come and play guitar?" And they hired a, a they got a singer in. They wrote a bunch of tunes. We went in to record the stuff as like I'm going to be in this band. 
with these guys, you know. And um, and we did it at Seals and Crop Studio. So um, what happened was they came off the road and they heard the stuff that we had done. Warner Records turned it down. And they were getting ready to go uh, to gear up for another tour. I guess it was like the following summer. Uh-huh. And uh, and so they and so they went to Bill and they said, "What's the steel story with this band? Why don't we just use this band that you've got?" No, Bobby yeah. Lyon was the bass player as well. Um, and so uh, so they so they just said, "Well, let's get Bobby." Bobby had worked with them for years, you know. And so they said, "Well, let's get Bobby back and 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 have these guys that, that did this recording. You don't need the singer, but you know, have me play guitar and have Michael play drums." And um, and so you know, we went into rehearsals. And, uh, and, it, and it was all going pretty good. Um, they were very meticulous about the drumming. Jimmy was crazy about the drumming thing. Mm-hmm, yeah. He was just nuts, you know. And so Michael was a fantastic drum, was a fantastic drummer. Um, but he was a little loosey-goosey, man. He's a little bit like Keltner, you know. He was a little, you know, relaxed, you know. And Jimmy needed everything to be, like, really meticulously clocked, as you mentioned. Right. So I said, hey, man, you know, so they, they got rid of him. They were going, we can't, we, we want to get another drummer, you know, which is kind of out, you know. Yeah, sure. The guy from the Doobie Brothers, and now you're kicking him out of the band. It's a little <laughs> strange. But, um, but, you know, I, I had done uh, a lot of work with Ralph Humphrey. And I said, man, if you want clock and you want, you know, on the groove, like don't move the, the groove, yeah. stay with the freaking click or whatever, Ralph's the guy. And yeah. so we brought Ralph in and he and Jimmy and Ralph got on unbelievably well. And, and the rest was kind of just, you know, just, it was like water falling off a duck's back, man. Ralph was the perfect guy for that gig. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it was just, you know, it was right after the Seals and Croft, um, you know, the gigs that you were doing with them that, okay, these gigs start snowballing, you know, things start getting faster, like you're saying. And, and um, you know, especially with, you know, gigging with your, you know, your brother Dan got you involved with Yvonne Elliman later on. And so, and, and then, of course, things start moving really, really quickly. So how, um, you know, you know, when the pace starts getting faster, I mean, does it overwhelm you? Or are you taking all this in stride because uh, maybe you got your brother Dan there? And- well, well, let, let, let me let me tell you how that all played out. Mm-hmm. Seals and Crofts did a the first record I ever played on was an album called Sudan Village, which okay. was um, a live Seals and Crofts record. On that album, we did a track called Thunderfoot. Thunderfoot was actually recorded in the recordings in the, in the studio. And so I was able to go and I played on the tune, you know. And so I'm in there with Louie and I'm playing my guitar and I got a solo and doing some things. And then the following year, they made another, they came out with their new album uh, called Taking It Easy. And they were really cool enough to actually use their road band on, on two of the songs. One of them was the actual title track. And, uh, and so I had become really comfortable at their recording studio with Joe Bogan, the engineer. And, and, you know, I mean, it was a kind of thing where, where my skill set was, was getting better and better. You know, I was playing on demos at the time and, you know, these guys were nice enough to hire me to play on a record. And, and, uh, you know, they, uh, we did another, we did a little film thing. And, and so there was a real comfort level going on, you know, with, with those guys and they in their studio and their engineer. And I was just, you know, so, so, so what happened was, was I played on a demo of uh, the song Love Pains that Yvonne Elliman did, that my brother wrote. Okay. It's the, it's, it's, it's the single. It's going to be the single. 
Steve Barry, the producer, calls Jay to play guitar on it. And then he calls, the, you know, back then they always used two guitar players. Mm -hmm. so, he call, so he's got Jay on board. And Jeff's on drums and Mike's on bass and Michael O'Marnian's on keyboard. Mike Picaro's on bass. And, um, and, and so they call guitar player number two and he's unavailable. And they call guitar player number three. I mean, I think they went through Dean Parks and a guy named Ben Benet and uh, the, the, uh, the list of like guys that Steve would call. Yeah. None of them were available. So it was like, well, they got Jay, and my brother Dan went to bat for me, and he said to the producer, Steve, he said, look, you like what Marty played on the, on the, on the demo. You're going you're gonna to have that part on your record. He was going to, you know, I'm sure Michael and Marty was going to write that into the arrangement. Mm -hmm. And so um, what happened was, was uh, you know, my brother convinced Steve to hire me, you know. He, he said, why don't you just hire my bro kid brother, if it goes well, cool. If not, you can always have Jay overdub the other stuff or get another guy in another day or whatever. Well, long story short, it was about the best three hours I ever had in the recording studio. <laughs> they they, we, we, cut, we cut that tune, and then, and then there was a song called Green Light that uh -huh. is a really great track that, that they did. We, we did three songs at the, in that session. And this tune, Greenlight, Omar, Michael O'Martin, had written a, a guitar line. It was like no take, like written down music paper, you know, here's the notes, play this line. I figured out a way to play it. I'm looking at the chart, and I'm playing this thing, and I figured out a way to play it with some open strings, you know, and kind of like, so it's real legato, and kind of like, I didn't just play the notes. I kind of figured out a way to make it work musically. And Graydon looks over the baffle at me. And says, "Hey Marty, how you playing that man? I want to double it." Shay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it like this, and I'm showing him how to play this thing. Yeah. Literally, I leave I leave Dawnbreaker Studio in San Fernando, and I walk into my house in um, Burbank, and uh, my phone was ringing, and it was uh, Michael O'Marnian's assistant asking me if she could book me on two weeks of you know record dates for. <laughs> With a guy named Benny Hester, who was a contemporary Christian artist. Well, I know yeah. Benny. I know Benny. Yeah. And then, and then a couple. And then, like a day later, Karen White, who was uh, who was Steve's uh, Steve Barry's assistant, calls me and says, "Hey Marty, whenever you work with Steve, you got to write double scale on the top of your W two." <laughs> <laughs> she says, "I'm filling it in for you now." But all of Steve's sessions are with like double scale musicians. So nice. just make sure when he calls you again to write W scale and double scale on W2. And then it just started from there. And all of a sudden, boom, my phone's ringing off the hook. You know, yeah, it was just, yeah. it was just went, it went crazy for a number of years. Yeah. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty nutty. You know? <laughs> but, but, and I tell my students at Berkeley, I say, guys, you know something? You just don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You don't know what call is going to be, what, what you're going to get that one call and it's going to change your life. And that was the yeah. one for me. You know, I played on, if I didn't play on that demo for my brother for 50 bucks or whatever I was paid to do that, right? I wouldn't have had a, you know, my career would have, would have not gone that way. Mm. It would have gone something, well, it was, something else would have happened, but it wouldn't have, you know, unfolded the way it did. Exactly. Yeah. Well, a second ago, you mentioned some of the players on that Avon Element album, and one, of course, was Jeff Percaro. And, and you had uh, prior experience working with Jeff before that session, right? I mean, you, how did you connect with Jeff in the first place? The first time I met Jeff, I was playing in a band, and we had a manager who was the the drummer's brother. <laughs> but okay. he had a he had a uh, he had a little rehearsal studio in Burbank uh -huh. on Magnolia Boulevard, 
and uh, and Jeff, there was this kind of buzz in the San Fernando Valley about this guy, man. Who's this drummer guy, Jeff Beccaro? He's like, you know, there's a, there was some kind of buzz about him. And I think mm-hmm. he was probably doing the Sonny and Cher show maybe at, at the time. Yeah. Or maybe he was doing it. I mean, he was really young when he did that. But anyway, um, th- this guy, this manager guy says, hey, look, I'm going to have this jam thing happen here. And I want you to play guitar. And I got this guy, Jeff Beccaro, coming to play drums. And I go, okay, cool, you know. And um, I show up. Jeff's seventeen years old. Yeah. I'm nineteen. I'm nineteen years old. And I show up, and we play. And man, we just hit. We just. He he had that special thing, man, about about relating to musicians. I I, I always told the story, man, that I always played the guitar different whenever I played with Jeff. He mm-hmm. he just made me. He made me just approach the instrument. I don't know what it was. <laughs> there was something about it, man, yeah. that hits. His intensity and his, he would look at you with those eyes and he'd stick his tongue out and he'd be playing and he'd be looking at you and you'd be playing and you'd go, damn, this is like really good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like shit I never thought of, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it was really true. It, there was something about him that just, you know, but, uh, but yeah, he wound up, uh, uh, I mean, we did that little jam thing and my phone rings, you know, I'm 19. He goes, Marty, he says, look, um, I, I'm. I got this other group I play with. We, we have this little warehouse above a, a doggy bed manufacturing company. <laughs> Why don't you come and play with us? You know, and it was uh, it was I think it was um, it was Jeff and myself and Carrie Morris and uh, Scott Shelley I think was there um, or and, or Steve Edwards the guitar players that they were you know kind of a, a, a pair of guitar players that worked quite you know closely with Jeff at the, at the time as well. And so, yeah, that's the first time I, I, I worked with him. And then it, I did that, you know, we jammed a little bit and did stuff. And then he just blew up. I mean, he just was like, you know, and he kind of left us all in the, in the, in the dust there for a few years, you know, <laughs> yeah. until, until I wind up on that, on the Yvonne record, you know. And uh, I mean, interestingly enough, I, I, I wound up doing another album with Jeff in 1990 uh, with Benny Hester, the guy that I okay. had done with Michael and Marty. And then, and and I mean that those that it, that record is killing. Jeff was just beating it up, and he was going, "Hey man, I want to buy these tracks, man. These tracks sound so good." He's talking to Benny, going, "Can I buy these tracks, man?" You know? And uh, and then all of a sudden, man, my phone starts ringing. You know, and I'm getting these calls from people I've never worked with before, and they're yeah. going, "Yeah, Jeff Picaro said to call you, man. Recommend you." And I'm showing up at these dates, and there's Jeff, and I'm going, "Wow, man, cool! Hey, buddy, thank you so much for recommending me." And then, you know, that was 1990, uh, 1991, I think, kind of in there, you know. And yeah. then shortly thereafter, you know, we all know what happened. Yeah. End of the San Fernando Valley music, man, a darkness, you know, it's mm-hmm. terrible. You know, those are some cool stories. We appreciate you sharing those with us. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, in the mid '80s, uh, you landed a touring gig with Supertramp, and and was um, was that connection to them through uh, drummer Bob Siebenberg? I mean, you you two used to play together in high school, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bobby, Bob Siebenberg uh, grew up in Glendale, California, and that was the town that I grew up in. I I, I kind of I, I went to school in Burbank Catholic school, so I kind of you know most of my friends lived in Burbank, but. But there were, you know, there was a, there were other musicians that we knew. I mean, you know, and I used to jam with these guys from Glendale, and um, and so you know, there were times when Bobby and I played together when we were in high school, and uh, along with Scott Gorham, the guitarist with Thin Lizzy, and um, Bobby married a girl, Scott's sister, Vicky Gorham. He graduates high school and moves to London. 
Scott was a year younger, and uh, and he graduates high school and moves to London. So a few years later, a buddy of mine that, that w was friends with him goes, hey, Marty, these these guys are like in these freaking rock bands, man. And I'm going, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is Bobby is in this band called Super Tramp, and Scott's in this band called Thin Lizzy. And I'm going, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> so we kind of check it out, and, you know, we buy the records, and we're all like going, oh, my God, dig these cats. You know, yeah. they're all, they're doing it, you know. Yeah. And uh, there was a buddy of mine, Scott Page, who was a saxophone player. Yeah. They worked with Toto and all kinds of Pink Floyd and all kinds of guys. And yeah. he worked with Supertramp. And, uh, and, but anyway, Scott had a band that used to play at this club in uh, Toluca Lake, which is outside, right outside of Burbank. And, uh, and I used to go there and hang out, you know. And Scott's band's playing. We're all hanging out. You know, all young guys, you know, hanging out, looking for what's going on. And, uh, and one night, man, these two guys walk in the door. Scott and Bobby. Mm -hmm. It's like, what the hell? You know, I'm like, <laughs> you're kidding, man, really? And so so I go, what where, what are you doing? And they go, We we were just coming back from a mix session of Breakfast in America, of the of the album that, that you know that yeah. Supertramp is doing. Yep. So they just made it a point to come to this club every night. They were walking into this joint every night, you know, like after the mix session, there they are. They walk in around eleven o'clock, you know, and we're hanging out and talking. And one night, Bobby brings in a cassette. I'm assuming it's of the mixes, like the final mixes before mastering. <clears throat> he walks into the, to this club. He's got this cassette. And he says, hey, you know, like, let's go to somebody's pad, man. Listen to this thing, you know. Yeah. And so, so, we, so we pile into the cars. And must have been about 10, 10 15 of us, you know. And, and I, I don't even know whose house we went to. We went to somebody's house. And they got the boom box going. And we're all, like, sitting around this boom box. And he puts this thing in. And it was like, you just knew, yeah. you, you just knew that opening sequence, that keyboard thing that, that fades in yeah. and you're just going, I mean, we, we proceeded to listen to the entire album with our jaws on the floor. <laughs> I still oh, do. <laughs> this is going to be ridiculous. This is, yeah. gonna, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And of course it was, you know? And so, um, so that thing blew up. Bobby buys a freaking house, puts a two-inch studio in it, outfits it with every possible freaking thing you can possibly put in. I mean, he was just rolling in dough, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, um, uh, and and Scott and Thin Lizzy had kind of had a little bit of a falling out. And so Scott was in L.A. a lot. And so he, he and I started writing some tunes, you know. So he and I started working on some stuff. And in the meantime, uh, Supertramp's working on uh, Famous Last Words. And yeah. Rick Davies calls me up and he says, he says, man, he says, I, I want to bring you into the studio um, just to because I had gotten to know all of the guys in Supertramp minus Roger. They were all hanging out at Bobby's house and we're like jamming, you know, we're like at, I'm at parties and stuff like that. And we're going, let's play, you know, and, I'm, and we're all jamming and stuff. And so I'd gotten to know all these guys. And uh, and so Rick says, look, we'd like to bring you in the studio just to kind of feel it out. You know, we went into Schnee's and um, into Bill Schnee's place in, right. in, uh, in North Hollywood. You know, and we spent three hours, you know, I think they, I think they paid me or I don't know if they paid me or just paid my cartage bill or something like that. And, um, and, and we just played stuff, you know, like, I don't know, played some blues or play, I don't know, played some things. I forget exactly how it went. Yeah. But, but the problem was that Roger and Rick were, were, were you know, a little bit at odds, you know, I mean, yeah. they, they had a little, they had a bit of a history of that, you know. Yeah. And so there was, there were questions as to what Roger's participation was going to be on that famous last words. So, um, 
so they just you know they they thought maybe they might need to bring a guitar player in at some point and um they brought me in i didn't play on it but uh but after that album came out and they toured roger left the band and then uh, they decided to carry on and do brother worry about and that's when rick called and i and i did that record with him so yeah but the connection was through bobby it was through my old high school buddy or or you know teenage friend you know that i used to jam with in jim williamson's garage yeah crazy that's very cool you, you mentioned uh, a second ago you mentioned scotty page um scott actually i don't know if you know this but he was our first guest on inside music cast oh you're kidding well he he ran something for toto the, he, he put together kind of a facebook for toto called mm-hmm. the toto network back before, yeah, I don't know, before facebook <laughs> yeah it was it was right? kind of it was kind of social networking for a band uh yeah, website yeah. before social networking was cool and and it was a really cool thing and eddie and i were correspondents of the toto network right and then we from that we sort of got the idea to spawn out and do inside music cast so That's we made scott our uh, inaugural uh podcast interview oh yeah hey, yeah hey that guy man he was you know scott ahead of his time dude he I was mean, he, i remember being on the road with him and he and he i mean you know, you've probably seen the videos that he did with Jeff and Luke and all those guys, right? Yeah. Those songs. Um, uh, is anybody listening? That's or, right. Yeah. Holiday, you know. And he, we're on the road in, in like France and Paris and stuff. And he's going, and he's got all these freaking papers and stuff. And he's telling me about his miking techniques and all this shit stuff he's going to do. I mean, he was he was way ahead of his time, man. And, and I mean, it, it's not surprising that, that he was ahead of the Facebook thing and putting a social networking thing together because... He was so on that, and he knew exactly what everything was. He knew it how how it was all going to go down, you know. But I haven't talked to him in quite some time. I hope he's doing well. Hey, yeah, Scott. we haven't either. I, I'm not sure what he's involved in right now, but uh, I'll probably have to knock on his door now and say hello because I <laughs> haven't talked to him. I got to meet him. I went out to L.A. I don't know when it was. Eddie it was probably Jeez. five or six, seven years ago, sure. and and I went down to uh, uh, went to, he's got a boat, a really beautiful boat that uh, he's had in his family for a long time, and he took me out, and it was it was great. We had a good time. Yeah, and we we go we go way back to the Valley College days, man. That's the first time I met. I knew Scott, and I was in Valley College. Cool. Same thing, man. Same thing. You know, small world. You know. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, I want to pause for a second, and I want to check out a track from Marty's debut solo CD, "The Total Plan," and this is a track called "Feeling Free." <laughs>
You know, I want to talk about some of the well-known projects you've, you've been involved with and, uh, and give us some insights as to how you were involved and, and what, what led you uh, to these gigs. And, and the first one I want to throw out there is uh, Neil Diamond's Heartlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle Colombier uh, had done a record called um, Old Fool Back on Earth, and uh, I played guitar on it. I was one of the guitar players on it. And Michelle, Michelle was working with Denny Deontay, a producer uh, uh, with uh, Columbia, uh-huh. who got the gig to, uh, to produce um, uh, Neil Diamond. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, it is, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, th- th- that was, that's a Burt Bacharach song. Right, right. And the first time, that I, the first time I worked with Burt was actually um, doing song demos for him with Paul Anka. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. I got a call. I got a call to go up to um, to Paul's house up in Carmel. Myself and Dave Parlato, this bass player, got these call. You know, we'd go up to you know Carmel and play on these songs for Paul and Bert. You know, and of course we're going to do it. I mean, you know, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> double scale, but you're going as freaking Bert Bacharach. I mean, I'm going up there to do this thing. You know, and um, and uh, and that's where I first met Bert and uh, and Heartlight. Um, God, I. That wasn't the first thing I worked with him on. Uh, I think the first thing I did with him was uh, was Arthur's theme that Michael Amartian had. Uh, right. Yeah. You know. And anyway, so so I mean, I just kind of was a bit of a known commodity at the time. I'm doing some sessions, and Denny Deontay liked what I was doing. I had done some other work for him, and uh, that session was called. I believe it was. De- I'm I'm pretty sure Denny produced it. God, if I hope I'm not losing my mind, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a connection with Bert and I had, you know, a connection with Denny and Michelle and uh, it just kind of, you know, I got the call and I showed up at Ocean Way and I played a play guitar and I think Dean Parks is on it. I think I played acoustic guitar on that and Dean played electric or something like that. I forget, you know. Interesting. But Oh, very cool. Another, yeah. You just mentioned another uh, track that I wanted to ask you about and uh, one of our past guests actually has been on the show a couple of times, Christopher Cross and uh, of course the song Arthur's Theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. That was uh, that was the first time I met Luke. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we had we had dinner uh, uh, a couple of years ago. He swung through here a couple of summers ago. He swung here through through here with Ringo, and my son my son Eric, who did the cover work on my album, is a is a big Steve Lukather fan. He's a guitar, okay. and uh, and Luke is great, man. He says, "Ah, oh, let's let's go have dinner," you know. So we go out to dinner. And we're talking, and I go, yeah, man, the first time I met you was like, was on the Arthur's theme track, and he's going, no, man, we, we worked before then. I'm going, I don't think so, man, but I'll never forget it. We were at Amigo in North Hollywood, and Omar's producing, Burt Backrack's there, um, God, who's engineering is probably John Guess, maybe, um, Jeff's on drums, and, uh, and, and Luke, his rig is there, and I show up, and I'm on acoustic guitar, <laughs> and I'm going, okay, cool, you know. And, and, uh, and Luke walks in and proceeds to sit down at the piano and play this freaking classical thing. It's like, <laughs> just ridiculous, you know, like, oh, okay. Like you're going to play the guitar the way you do. And you're going to play the piano like that. Okay. I'll sit over here with my little acoustic guitar and strum away, man. You know. <laughs> but anyway, it was a great record, man. Great record. We had a great time. The, the vibe in the room at that time, man, when we did that thing, 
we played that thing back. It was like it was the the, the hairs were standing out on your arms, going, "This is a freaking smash! This is going to be a huge freaking record." You yeah. just knew, man. Great yeah. song, great singer, great players. The whole thing was just great, you know. Every now and again, you get one of those. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. that brings us to another track called Nine to Five by Dolly Parton." Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that in uh, at a studio. I can never remember the name of the darn place. It's really close to Capitol Records, kind of in the back. Jeff was on that one, um, and uh, God, you know, it was just—it was one of those things. I mean, I don't know. I, I got the call, you know. I mean, you're you're a, there was a period of time, you know. The thing about being a studio musician, I mean, I hate to say a, a window of opportunity, not not a window of opportunity. It's kind of there's almost kind of like a shelf life, you know. Like, like, but, and then, and then, but when you get, when you get kind of hot and known, you know, I'm playing with Michael, I'm, I'm showing up on all these records that Michael O'Mardian is producing. I'm on Von Element. I'm on this other one. I'm on, she works hard for the money. I'm on this, you know, I mean, that was prior to nine to five, but, but I mean, you know, I didn't know, um, the, the producer that produced nine to five. I just got the call. I mean, I, I think what it is, uh, I think I got the call from Frank DeCaro, maybe who was the contractor at the time. And, you know, the, the, in the recording business at that time, there were these contractors that, like, you know, you'd call the guys, call the cats. Who are they? You know, give make the phone calls. Yeah. So, I mean, somehow my name got, got thrown out there. Call this cat to come and play on it. And there I am, you know, doing the thing. So, but that was another great track, man. You know, that was another Dolly, man. Oh, my God. She's hysterical, <laughs> you know. I mean, she was great. Man. She was just funny as you can. I mean, just personable, wonderful, yeah. wonderful human being, you know. And another, another, just absolute. You know, you go back and you listen. And you go, well, it's a freaking hit. You know, what are you going to say? It's, it's, oh, it's it was a huge. Yeah. Well, and and then uh, I wanted to ask you about your extensive work with Leanne Rhymes. You've done quite a few projects with her, right? Yeah, yeah. I got. Uh, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, to work with her uh, right after she did her first album. Um, you know, interesting story. Again, I'm full of them, apparently. <laughs> uh, no, we love the story, so that's good. There's a studio. There's a studio in Tyler, Texas, that like nobody knows about, and it's called uh, a Rosewood Studios, and owned by a guy named Greg Hunt. Greg has done a, a number of contemporary Christian records, and so they found me in 1985, along with a number of other musicians in LA that were doing those kinds of projects, and they. They hired us to come out and play on an album by a group called, oh man, I want to say the uh, the Archers, but I don't know if that's right. But anyway, so so we go down there, and and we I think it was eighty five, eighty six, something like that, and a bunch of us go down there, and we we make this record, and they loved what we did, and so once every you know year and a half maybe two years they'd get a project down there that would be you know you know they'd get a budget to like call the la cats you know and they're putting my gear on a truck i mean i've got a rack you know i've got two racks and all my guitars and stuff. i mean they're shipping all this stuff to to tyler texas and we're making records and every you know it was just one of those things where every now and again you get well leanne gets signed leanne rhymes is from dallas and she uh, made her first recordings at Rosewood Studios with Greg. Uh -huh. She gets signed. She's 12 years old. And her father, yeah. Wilbur, bringing her into to, 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 uh, Rosewood. She winds up getting signed with Curb out of Nashville. Mm -hmm. They make a record. They cut Blue and don't like it. 
Wow. Right? With all the Nashville guys. Wilbur says, well, her band plays the hell out of the song. Why don't we just go into the studio and Tyler and record this track, right? In three hours, they take her road band in and record the song Blue, which, I mean, the album sold six million records. It's, it's <laughs> huge, huge, huge. The song was number one for 80 years. I mean, it was like... <laughs> It was like crazy, right? Yeah. So, so, so Mike Curb goes, "Who the hell are these guys in Tyler, Texas?" You know, right? And uh, so they're doing the, they're doing her follow up album, sitting on top of the world. And Leanne's young, and she, and she wants to change her thing. You know, she doesn't want to sing old school country. She wants to you know rock it up a little bit, and you know, yeah. be a contemporary. So, so they're working on her second album, sitting on top of the world, and uh, and and. At this point, Greg is is getting he's you know people are calling him up because he did Blue and they're going hey we want you to record our band or our thing, and so um, there was a, some project that uh, that he was involved in and uh, and 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 he called me to come and play on that, and so I did you know my gear was I was actually living here at the time in Massachusetts but my gear was still in L.A. I was kind of flying back and forth doing dates in L.A. still, so I shipped all my stuff to Tyler. And, uh, and, and he says, look, he says, I got this project, but I want you to play on a few of Leanne's tracks. Her father's not really into it. He just wants to use her road band, but I'd like you to play on some of her tracks because I think you've got the pop sensibility because her band was pretty old school country, you know? Yeah. So he says, I, I, I'd like you to play on a few things. I'll pay you to do it, you know, and, uh, just to hip it up a little bit and make it a little more modern. So, so we did a few tracks. I forget which ones they were. But her father, Wilbur, heard him, and he, and he liked it. And he says, man, just you know, keep bringing the guy back. So, so I finished that record. I did, you know, I played on just about all the tracks on that, on Sitting on Top of the World. And then, you know, that album came out and did double platinum, and so things are looking good. And, and we, uh, we, did, uh, we did a couple more records. I played on the single Big Deal for her. And, uh, and then uh, we cut that as at the same time she did like a classic throwback record called uh, Leon Rhymes. It's all old school country tunes. Yeah. But at the same time, we did the album I Need You. We were kind of, we cut two albums at the same time over about a two, two and a half, maybe three week period. Wow. Great musicians on that stuff, man. Eddie Bears, man. Ridiculous drummer. Killing it. Just loved it, man. Mm -hmm. Michael Nadello. I mean, you know, just really wonderful, wonderful musicians from Nashville. And I... I, I don't, you know, I I had not really worked in Nashville. I don't really, you know, I, I kind of got to know those guys at, on those sessions. And uh, Paul Lyme was on it, you know, and some of the stuff. And uh, had a ball, man. Leanne's an unbelievable talent. Unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. She would, be, she would I'd be sitting there playing my guitar, and she's recording the lead vocal <laughs> at the tracking date. Like, seriously. Like, she's got the booth. She's in the booth recording the lead vocal at the tracking date. Wow. And, and then, and then we go back and listen, and she says, you know, to Greg, uh, maybe I'd like to punch the second line of the bridge, and then she'd go punch it, and that would be it, and she would never touch her vocal again. That was it. Wow. Her, her lead vocals were done at the tracking session. That's incredible. She's that good. Yeah. <laughs> she is that good. Another great track from Marty's debut solo CD is a track called Groove Mechanics. And let's pause for a second and give it a listen.
I, I want to touch on something here, and we it's a sort of a little sidetrack, sidebar, but I want to go into a little uh, exit here into your some of your television in film work, and we don't have to go that deeply into it, but you, you've done an awful lot of uh, work, composition, uh, just to name a few things, uh, whether they're TV shows or movies, but you've worked on Arthur, like we said, 9 to 5, Officer and a Gentleman, King of Queens, I mean, even stuff like uh, Entertainment Tonight, The Simpsons, Knight Rider. I mean, how did you cross over to tread a little bit on that highway, you know, called uh, entertainment music, you know? Well, there were two uh, two different opportunities I had. One was a guy with a guy named David Fisher. Mm-hmm. He's a songwriter, and he was in a band called, uh, he was in a folk group called The Highwaymen in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew Don Costa, and Don Costa hooked him up with uh, doing um, sound-alikes for, uh, for 20th Century Fox. Okay. So, so David and the, and this rhythm section that that he had, you know, we would go into 20th Century at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, in the scoring stage, and we'd cut um, uh, soundalikes. So a lot of that, a lot of that film stuff was all set like Knight Rider and those things. Mm-hmm. And that stuff was with a group that did soundalikes for David Fisher. Um, we, I wasn't involved in the scoring, you know, sessions and stuff. I mean, some of it I was, you know, I played on, you know, big and some other things where I was involved in, in you know, at the real scoring dates with the, with the uh, orchestra and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but most of that stuff was, was through David, uh, with the, with the sound alike tracks that we were doing. Okay. And okay. The, other, the other stuff like, um, you know, entertainment tonight and stuff like that. I got involved with a couple of library music companies in LA back in the mid early nineties, you know, to mid nineties. And, um, and they just said, look, we need music for like, uh, you know, the, the first one that happened was, was, uh, was, uh, they came to me and said, we would like you to write a piece of music that sounds like bad to the bone. And so I got the slide guitar out. And I went, da, 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 and I put a drum track together, mm-hmm. and, I cut this, and I cut this tune called Bad. You know, my, <laughs> wife, my wife Libby wrote the lyrics, and I, and I, and I had a buddy of mine come and sing it, and he, he's got that growly voice, you know. And so uh, George Thorogood wanted too much money to get it marked, to get it to, into um, uh, ER. There was right. a CER where they wanted to use his song, and he wanted, you know, too much sync fee. So wow. I cut the thing to get it in ER. And then, of course, George, you know, rethought his position and they used his <laughs> song. But two weeks later, I get a phone call and there was a, 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 a cable show called Sister, Sister that was looking for the same kind of thing. And so they said, well, we got the song for you. And they put it into Sister, Sister. And then these people just started calling. They're called, the company's called Transition Music. And they just then all of a sudden, they just start calling me all the time. Hey, you know, we need a song like this. We need a song like that. There was a really... Uh, interesting movie called uh, Sunset Strip that they that they asked me to write a bunch of pieces of music for. I did like three or four tunes for that, and um, yeah. So you know, so I mean, library music is it became a real big deal in the '90s. You know, a lot of people were just going, well, you know, songwriting is kind of taking a backseat because of all of the, you know, the way the record business was kind of going with the with the punk rock bands or the uh, alternative rock bands and the rap thing. And so people started, you know, doing a lot of library music, and that's kind of how I got into that hole. It's interesting. That's that's such a, yeah, that's such a huge business. I, I mean, we, I mean, I'm a sort of advertising type of thing, so I work with Rick on some uh, on, on pieces sometimes, and it's just amazing the kind of well, quality that happens, Rick. I I own a, a post production studio, and we've got several libraries here, and and they've gotten, you know, from when I first started in the business. 
20 some years ago it's 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 so much better it's 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 it the music on these libraries are amazing yeah oh incredible yeah it's, it's crazy it's crazy good um yeah i've been i've been working quite closely uh with uh with a guy named doug stevelton who has uh, a company called iron mike and for the last i don't know four years or so we've been cranking them out and and he's been getting them placed, and it's cool. really good. I got my I got my son Ian on it too. He's a keyboard player. He's been doing a bunch of dance stuff for Doug, so kind of nice, man. Keep it in the family, you know. Hey, I got another question here from uh, Mikhail Engstrom over in Sweden, and he says, "In 1997, you released an album with uh, Billy Sherwood with your group, The Key, and the album was called The World Is Watching, and yeah. uh, and it was released on a German label called MTM Records." And right. uh, Mikael wants to know, uh, he said, can you tell us a story on how that album came about and the story around how you got signed on uh, with MTM? You know, it's just it's just crazy, man. I mean, you know, Mikael, hey, baby, I love you, man. This is great questions. Um, uh, here's what the here's the deal. I met Billy Sherwood when he was 18 years old and he had a band called Logic and they were opening for Supertramp. Yeah. In 1986. This kid was freaking amazing. I went to him and I go, Billy, man, what's the deal? You know, like if you ever want to write songs or do anything, I want to work with you. So, so we became really good friends and uh, started writing music together. And so we're writing songs. We, we got together with John Robinson, the drummer that I worked with on yeah. Fogarty Tour. And John and I are still really, really close and we still work together on yeah. stuff. Um, and, uh, and so Billy and I just, you know, wrote a bunch of songs. And then, and then he said, he called me up. It was 1992 or 93. And he says, man, let's write. I got a manager. Let's write a bunch of material and let's see if we can make it, you know, get a record contract, you know? Okay. Hello. So, so we've, you know, I spent hours and hours with him at his studio up in Van Nuys and, uh, and we write all this stuff. And the manager doesn't like it. The manager's going, man, it's not current enough. It's blah, 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 you know. And, uh, and so Billy had success, had a band called World Trade. The, the first album they did is one of my favorite records. I mean, it's just a fantastic album. Well, he decides, because the manager says, hey, doesn't want to do the thing with me, he goes back to the World Trade guys and says, let's do a World Trade record, which they do. And so Billy calls me up and he says, Marty, he says, look, I'm putting out this world trade record, but uh, we had we wrote a song for our project called Euphoria. He says, "I just I want to just put it on the record. Do you mind?" And I go, "No, man, put it on the record." So I got a songwriting credit on this on the album World Trade Two, I guess it's called. Um, you know, on this song Euphoria. Yeah, and I think the I think the album was maybe, maybe the album was called Euphoria, right? Okay, and so. Um, so anyway, so I moved to Massachusetts, you know, and here I am, and I get a an an email. The internet's just starting up, you know, and I mean, I get an. I guess I got an email from this cat, Jorgen Johansson from Sweden. Oh yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and he says, "Hey, are you the Marty Walsh that wrote this song with Billy Sherwood?" And I go, "Yeah." And he says, uh, "What else have you done with Billy?" And I go, "We got an album's worth of material, you know, that we've written over the last five or six years." And he says, you're kidding. I'd love to hear it. So I go, okay. And I sent him a cassette. I think I, I'm, I think I must have sent him a cassette. And he listens to it and he says, I've got a guy in Germany that might be interested in putting this out. Okay, cool. And so, uh, <laughs> so, so he sends the stuff to, um, oh, God, I'm going to forget his name, which is terrible. Um, no, well, we got to move on. But, 
But anyway, he sends it to this guy, and 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 he wants to he wants it. So we go, okay, cool, you know, like, and and Billy does a little mastering thing, and I work on some graphic stuff, and we send all the files over the internet, and uh, and they put the album out, you know, and 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 I'm talking to the guy that you know that the that it's killing me that I can't remember his name. <laughs> I gotta find I gotta find the CD here quick. But, but, <laughs> You know, we're, we're, he's, you know, he says they drop, they wire the money to our bank accounts and they put the album out. It's called the key. And it's really, it's just a compilation wow. of, uh, of music that Billy and I had written from 1988 through about 1993. That's cool. You know? And, um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's a good record, man. There's some good stuff on that record. I'm proud of that record. Very you know? cool. Well, Hey, um, just transitioning from, you know, all of, uh, you know, from your studio musician uh, gigs to your collaborations and, and everything you've done, musically speaking. Now, you, you know, from a performance standpoint, now you're teaching. Now you're at Berkeley. And, and tell me about how you began teaching at Berkeley and how did they bring you on? And, and did you have an interest in teaching or was this a position that presented itself as an, kind of an interesting opportunity, something kind of different for you? Well, the, um, I moved to my wife from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, deci- we decided, you know, to get out of LA. Um, all signs were kind of pointing point east, you know, like, what, let's go back to her hometown. Yeah. I'm still going to work in LA. I'm going to still have my connections. I'm going to still write my library music stuff. I'm, you know, and with the internet coming on, I, I was very on board on that really early on. I said, you know something, I'm going to be able to work from anywhere. You know, I got a studio at my house now. I still work for people all over the place, you know. And so anyway, so we, so we move here and, um, you know, I, I start meeting people and musicians and stuff and I go, okay, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I, it really became apparent that Berkeley College of Music is the hub of the music community in Boston. Yeah. Everybody that's doing, everybody that's kind of got anything going on in Boston has something going on at the school. Yeah. So I'm really not thinking about it too much, but, uh, but enter 19 enter 2003 i'm in i'm in tyler texas with greg and lee leanne has moved to la and she's going to do a rock record with desmond childs and greg is telling me hey you know something the curb thing is probably going to go away and so i'm saying all right now what you know i can you know my la connections have been kind of drifting a little bit i haven't lived there for you know eight years or seven years or something like that and so I said, man, you know, this Berkeley thing, I mean, every, I got all kind of friends that, that work there. I mean, maybe I'll give this a shot and just see how it plays out. So I cold emailed Ron Savage of the ensemble department and said, look, you know, here I am. If you need teachers, I mean, I'd love to do it. I mean, my, my background is in studio work. So working with ensembles, if I've got a drummer and a bass player and a keyboard player and some singers and guitar players, I mean, I can manage it, you know. And... Uh, so uh, luckily for me, um, they 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 wound up with a lot more students in 2003 than they thought were going to show up. Hmm. They needed teachers, and so they brought on they brought four teachers on to teach a particular class. Uh, it was a it was a very kind of entering level ensemble, and they brought me in and gave me three three classes, and um, and uh, and then you know starting there i mean i just kind of parlayed it into a lot more stuff and i teach in the music production department now and and it's great man i mean i'll tell you to be um in the position that i'm in to to have known people like jay graden i mean i work with guitar players and i tell them constantly i mean i got a great quote man 
when I first started teaching at Berkeley, I, I emailed Jay and I told him I was doing it. And now Jay, you guys know Jay's work. He's an unbelievable yeah. guitar. He can take it anywhere you want to go. He can play bebop with the best of them. He can freaking play. I mean, you know, he's just ridiculous. But Jay always gave me the right information. He says, Marty, be in tune. Have a good sound. P you know, um, uh, get your rhythm guitar skills together. You know? And, I t and so I emailed Jay in 2003. I go, hey, dude, I'm, I'm teaching at the Berklee College of Music, of all places. And he says, and he sends me this email. He goes, tell all your guitar players that the money goes down exponentially after the fifth fret. <laughs> Solos, <laughs> solos don't make you any money. You, you know, yeah, okay, you all want to be freaking Steve Vai and Joe Satriani. There's only a couple of guys that get to do that. Yeah. <laughs> all the other guys that are making bread are playing acoustic guitar behind some singer on the road. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, that's the, you know, and I tell, I work with my guitar players constantly, Berkeley, <laughs> going, guys, look, this is what you need to focus on. I know you all want to, you know, play like, you know, <laughs> Some superstar, you know, you want to play like Luke, but man, Luke made his dough playing rhythm guitar. I mean, he obviously made his dough playing lead guitar too, but I mean, sure. he, he, he's an incredible rhythm guitar player. Mike Landau is an unbelievable rhythm guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah. Michael Thompson, they're all friends of mine. Rhythm. Ridiculous rhythm guitar players. Dean Parks, unbelievable. Larry Carlton, all just great rhythm sets, man. They had great time, yeah. great sound, great <laughs> ideas, you know, and that's, that's really what it's all about. So, I mean... I impart that wisdom to <laughs> to my students, and and what I get out from them is what's happening now. I mean, literally, I I I, I walk into my ensemble classes and I say, "What are we going to play?" You know, because the, the the amount of music that's out there. I mean, I'm I'm these students are are showing me music, the most interesting stuff that I've heard in years. You know, they'll go, well, let's play this song and I'll bring it up on YouTube and go, my God, I love this thing. You know, Versa Emerge, man. It's right, a yeah. fantastic band. I mean, so, yeah, you know, it keeps me young and keeps me on my toes. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, it's just a, it, at this stage of the game for myself as a, as a guitar player and as a musician, it's there's nothing more rewarding than working with, with really great yeah. young talent. That's and true. seeing them do really, really well. I mean, I have a hard time holding it together sometimes, you know. I mean, I just, sometimes I got to walk out of the room. I just get too emotional, you know. If, if my students are really kicking ass, man, it's just, it's it's hard it's hard to take because you're so proud of them, you know. Because yeah. you work with them and you can see the development and stuff like that. And there's just real talent there. But yeah, go ahead. I want to talk about your new album. It's called The Total Plan. And yeah. uh, you include tons of West and East Coast buddies of yours, starting with Abe Laboreal, J.R., Michael Ruff, Billy Sherwood, as we've talked about, John Pena, Bill Cuomo, Tom Major, and the list goes on and on. Even your son, Ian, has a, has a part in this whole thing. Tell us a little bit about uh, you know this project, which is totally instrumental, called The Total Plan. Well, um, it all started... Uh, it all started 20 years ago with Jeff Weber, producer in L.A. Jeff called me up and he said, uh, Marty, says, there's a record label out of Japan that wants to do an album on another. It was getting very fashionable for L.A. studio musicians to do instrumental music and put out albums in Japan. And he says, um, they, they want to they do an album on another L.A. studio guitar player. I mean, I'm assuming that you know they had done Buzzy and done a lot of different guys and so he came to me and says, look, you know, you, you want to submit some stuff. I had some vocal tunes that I had been working on, and I, 
and I, I stripped the vocals off them, and I um and I and I you know just freaking played guitar on them, you know, and uh, and gave the stuff to Jeff, and he dug it, but the th the project never happened. So, it, you know, it was really off the radar completely until I started teaching at Berkeley. I started teaching there, and I go, you know, I I, I recalled these tracks, and I started with an Ada with a uh, 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 a tape machine called a a Kai 12 track back 20 years ago. I'd record some of this stuff on. I found a guy in LA to transfer some tapes to wave files. I got those back. I started working on them. And, um, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to kind of peck away at this album um, and ask people that I've worked with over the years to play on a track for me, you know, like, and I've known John Robinson forever. Yeah. So I went to John and I says, Hey man, you know, we wrote a, John and I wrote a song that was, you know, for, for another project that, that, you know, the song kind of nothing happened with the project. And uh, I said, let's take this tune and let's, let's turn it into an instrumental piece, man, for my record. Okay. So we did it. And, and you know, he had a kind of a, a kind of a basic drum thing on it and I'd play some guitars. Well, you know, I said, well, you know, let's, let's cut like drums on it. You know, he, and he had a synth bass part and a little keyboard thing. So he did the drum track and then I sent it off to, uh, John Pena, I asked him to put a bass track on it. So he put a bass track on it. And then I sent it off to Michael Ruff. And I'm doing it all over the internet. Send it all over, you know. And my, and Michael Ruff does the keyboards. And then I and then I do my guitars. And, and away we go. And that was one of the songs uh, on the album. And they all kind of came uh, came along like that. You know, just different songs with different people. And, uh, and I just would call up a lot of, you know, everybody that I knew in the business and go, Hey, man, I, I really want you to play on this particular song. Lincoln Schleifer, bass player out of New York that worked with Michael Ruff. I did a song with my son, Ian, called Inside the Rain. It was a song we wrote for his high school graduation. We actually wrote the piece together. And it was a song I wanted to include on the record. And I, and I, you know, I had a basic track, and I said, Lincoln, will you play on this thing? And he, you know, all these musicians just graciously uh, accepted, you know, this idea of, of playing on this record for me. And uh, it took 10 years to complete. It's finally done, you know, and. I thank Jeff Weber every day. I mean, he's the first guy I sent it to. I go, Jeff, I, I did this album. You got to hear it. And he flipped. He goes, man, you, let's put it on my label and let's put it out, you know? And um, Yeah. So, Marty, we've been listening to these tracks and uh, off the new album, and uh, and they really weave your classic guitar sounds throughout. In fact, I'd like to say that, like, uh, there's a track called Like a Rock. It's almost a musical DNA of your sampling of your style of work. And uh, it's just a great, great, great piece of music. And uh, I need to know, on that track, did Michael Ruff play the synth solos on this piece? Tell us a little bit about this Like a Rock track. No, Like a Rock is, uh, is, uh, is a fellow by the name of Nick Manson. Hmm. Nick Manson was a, uh, is a keyboard player that I met um, quite a few years ago, okay. um, back when I was doing some work up in Seattle with producer Roby Duke, the late Roby Duke, my dear friend. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and Nick, Nick worked uh, with uh, Eric Persing um, developing the Spectrasonics software. Yeah. Um, all those great Spectrasonics freaking, you know, software. Yeah, he, he doesn't, uh, Eric, he works with uh, Bob Wilson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, that's... and so and so, Nick, that like a rock actually came from an album that I did. Uh, well, eighteen years ago, I put a, I put a record out called Lucius Tokus. <laughs> yeah, and the opening and, and one of the tracks on that was called Like a Rock. Well, I just 
I got the analog tapes out and I transformed the wave files and I and I just uh, um, you know put put some guitar on it called Nick because Nick knew Roby and so he introduced me to Roby Duke and 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 he was part of that that whole kind of thing that was happening up in Seattle. I was going up there and doing a lot of work. And, yeah. And uh, and so I, he was the perfect call. I go, hey Nick, will you play on this tune? Because he loved the record that we did together. Yeah, you right. know? And so I, and I sent that to him, and Nick and Nick did the the, the synth part on it, and um, and then uh, and then there's some horn. There's a horn section of students from Berkeley, and the rest of it's my guitar. You know. Yeah. Well, speaking of horns, you actually uh, those are probably some of the horns you include on some of the tracks. They're almost a little slower uh, rock ballads like Coast to Coast, Groove Machine, yeah. and uh, you know definitely a slow type of classic uh, a vibe and of, of character. Or do they uh, the students played some of the horns on those tracks too? No, no, no. I mean, it, every song has a different has a different Personnel. Pretty I gotcha. Much, you know? Okay, gotcha. Um, uh, the the uh, the the horns on Coast to Coast are uh, the trumpet is, is a fellow by the name of Darren Barrett, who's a fabulous jazz trumpet player. Sounds great. Who teaches at Berkeley, and then and then um, <laughs> I, w- I I wanted to have a saxophone player on it, and I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I said, you know something, I got to call Gary Herbig. Gary Herbig and I played on the song "She Works Hard for the Money" okay. with Donna Summer. Right. He played the saxophone solo. I did all the guitar work. Played the guitar solo. I called him up. I said, "Gary, I'm coming to L.A. in March to do something else. Would you play on this on this thing for me?" And he goes, "Sure." <laughs> and then I called my buddy Jay Graydon, who we've been talking about, and I said, "Jay, I need to record Herbig on a song. Would you? Could we come to your studio and record it?" And so, you know, I, I went I went to L.A. on a, on another trip I had to do. It was a Berkeley thing, and and yeah, we recorded uh, um, uh, Gary at Jay's place, but. Yeah, that particular song's got uh, John and Abe, um, Darren, uh, Gary, and myself, and Bill Como. I called Bill and said, dude, you know, we go way, way, way back, man. I need your keyboards on this track. And I sent it down to Nashville, and he did the keyboards on that one. Very, very nice. You know, compositionally, um, you know, creating a project like this with without lyrics, um, you know, is it less challenging you know, now that they don't have lyrics, or do you actually have to be a little bit more creative to ensure that the music doesn't just go gray on you? How do you approach an instrumental album as opposed to your previous work? Well, <clears throat> good question, man. Um, the uh, the the idea behind the album and most of the songs on this record started out as vocal tunes. Hmm. I, I think there's, I think. Um, I think the only one that didn't start out as a vocal tune was the, was the one that I wrote with my son Ian um called Inside the Rain. Every every else every other song started out as a vocal song. So the idea was it was going to have a vocal on it. Right. And that's how that's how it was initially put together. Gotcha. So we just strip off the vocal and now you really have kind of like a 3 minute 50 second pop tune. But instead of having vocals, you're going to put instrumental stuff on it. Yeah. So it was really it was developed from the from that aspect. It wasn't developed from I'm going to make an instrumental album. What do <laughs> I do? It was really like these were all songs that had started as vocal tunes, and then and because of that, I think there's kind of a a, a kind of a cool melodic sensibility to the record, where you know it's 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 not typical guitar playing stuff where guys you know 
show off all of their chops and their massive in, in, in information. Yeah. It's a lot of triads and it's a lot of kind of simplistic melodies with some really wonderful musicians playing on it. You know? Yeah. Well, talking about that track, uh, Inside the Rain, and, and this whole thought about, you know, it's kind of conceptually designed for lyrics, but it's basically they're stripped away. Would you ever plan to maybe go back in at some point and, and redevelop the song with lyrics? That one, that particular one, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, beautiful. We can certainly, we can certainly do that. Um, you know, <laughs> the problem is that is that the hardest thing in the world to do is write a great song. Yeah. And 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 the hardest part of writing a great song is writing a great lyric. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, I mean, I I can write some lyrics and stuff, but man, I mean, it's just to write a great one's just so tough, you know. Yeah. And so yeah. if I did it, you know, it would have to be one of those things where somebody heard it and said, "Hey, I want to write a lyric to this," and I'd go, "Hey, go," you know. Right. You know, yeah. You know. You know, having composed all the tracks, you know, on uh, the total plan, do you ever um, uh, write any guitar parts that really, really challenge you musically? I mean, you did, you pretty much did all the guitars here, or the majority of them. Um, when you write your, for yourself, how, how much do you really challenge yourself musically? Oh, man, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, I, it's it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, you know, I, I talk to people about production, and I say, you know, you just kind of start with something, you know, I mean, I, you just kind of start and then you, and then, and then you make a decision about something. You say, well, I like that. And then that, and then that leads to the next thing and that leads to the next thing and leads to the next. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got, you got, you're done and it's finished. Um, in terms of the guitar playing, um, yeah, th- I mean, there was a lot of time that went into those solos. I mean, the, a lot of the melody stuff was pretty simple, you know, it came to me pretty quick. <laughs> um, but a lot of the solo stuff was really, you know, thought out and like, okay, you know, I, I like this, I don't like that, let's retrack this, let's, you know. And, um, you know, or, or I would I would just, you know, playing a guitar solo, a lot of times you would just, you just play. And then you listen back and you go, man, I like 20% of that. Right, yeah. So I'm going to keep this bit and then I'm going to drop in and I'm going to put that, you know, and then you can find something to figure it out and, you know, just kind of keep going. And and then you wind up with the thing in the end and you go, I, I think I like it, you know. It cool. seems like it's pretty good, you know. Hey, Marty, Eddie, let's take a, a quick pause and let's check out a track from Marty's debut solo CD, The Total Plan. And this is a track called The Road.
Well, hey, Marty, the, the album, uh, The Total Plan, this is your debut solo release, right? You've never done this before, correct? Well, I've done, I, I did a record back with Roby, uh, I mentioned. Um, yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah. That, that, that thing, and, and I have the record with Billy, um, and, uh, and then when I moved to Massachusetts, I, uh, I put a band together with a really great songwriter guy by the name of Craig Stevens, and we did a record, but nothing much happened with that. It was just a local thing, so... This this album to me is the is kind of like the pinnacle work. I mean, this one is the one where I I really put the time in and and uh, I mean I, I just I, I made this record and I listened back and I go I don't think I can do any better. I mean I you know I mean I just I, I'm I'm very proud of it and I think that you know having all of the musicians on it that I've worked with over the years. You know, it's just, um, it, I just love how the thing came together. But yeah, this is, this is the one that I'm really kind of like looking at going, man, you know, this is it. This is, yeah. I'm very, very happy about the way the thing turned out. Well, Eddie and I both, we talked, you know, you sent the, you sent us the link to grab it, you know, it's prior to the interview and we both listened to it several times and, and uh, I think we both are in agreement it's, that we, we both think it's a beautiful uh, collection of, of work. Definitely. We Thank highly you. recommend it. That's for sure. Thank and you, you. Thank and this you. can be purchased on uh, on. I think I saw a link where uh, you. I think you posted it on Facebook today, where it can be uh, purchased on eBay. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm putting it on. You know, I'm getting it on all the digital outlets through TuneCore. Yeah. But uh, I've, I've run into a little bit of snags with that, and I want to get the thing out. And so I was just kind of going, well, how do you get the CD? How do you? Who's going to put CDs out? I'm on TuneCore going. No, you know, you can't, nobody puts, nobody mails CDs anymore. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. and so, and so I thought, well, what the hell? I'll just go on eBay and I just put it, I just put my record up on eBay, 10 yeah. bucks free shipping. You can, I'm, I'm sure you, if you search Marty Walsh, the total plan, boom, there it'll be, you know, or if you're on Facebook and you search my name, you can find the link. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was like, I was, I figured I would be on TuneCore and be able to distribute the actual physical CDs, but doesn't seem like that's happening. So I figured, what the heck, I just do it myself, you know? Cool. Well, we'll be sure to put a link up on our Facebook site and, and to let everyone know where, where they can grab that. No doubt. Great, man. Appreciate that. Well, Marty, th- thanks so much. This has been a, a wonderful chat. Some great stories. Great uh, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. Uh, we're, we're glad to have you on the show finally. Oh, man, I really appreciate that you uh, you put me on, man. I mean, you got a great you got a great show, man. The stuff that I did here, I just was like completely blown away by and uh, – and just uh, really honored to be, you know, I mean, when I first went to your website and I looked at it, I'm going, oh, my God, these look at these people on this thing. Man. <laughs> like, man, I mean, you know, and they're going to put me on with this this kind of company, man. I I mean, that's uh, that's a real honor, you know, and uh, and I appreciate the fact that, that, that you would take the time to, you know, to, to do this interview and, and put me up on the site, man. It's, it's just great. Well, we're honored, too. And, and thanks, yes, thanks so much for spending all this time with us. No doubt. Hey, man, love it. All love right. it. Love it. Let's keep in touch, okay? Okay, guys, thank you so much, and have a good one. Take Take it easy. Okay, we'll see you. Special thanks to Marty Walsh for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, Don Breidup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.